you can open your Bible to the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. Some people say the book of Nahum is as difficult to find as happiness. <laughs> it's really difficult. You need to look for it. It's next to that. It's next to that. It's behind that. It's, <laughs> it's on page 1503 in my Bible, if that helps you in any way. After the book of Micah. So last week we were, last week, last time when we were going through the Minor Prophets, we finished the book of Micah. And um, I was wondering today, how am I going to introduce the book of Nahum? And um, the reason I say that is, the Minor Prophets obviously speak about judgment and God's wrath and God's displeasure with his people, with other nations. Um, it also speaks then about the prophecy of the future and all these things. But the book of Nahum is, is just God's wrath on Nineveh. There is very little, um, let me say at least hope for Nineveh in this story. So I was thinking, how do I <laughs> bring this across? But you know what? God's word is his word. <laughs> the book of Nahum is written for a reason. And if that means we need to take something from that and see where it, we need to learn from, then that is what God wants us to hear. But I think at the same time, we praise God if you're saved that you are not under God's wrath. And I think because you'll see the severity of his wrath in this book. And so we need to make sure that we're not under that wrath. So... I want to do, if, well, let me just give you an idea of what the, I will be attempting today. It helps, helps me, I hope it helps you. So we're going to have an introduction. And in that introduction, we will be looking at the, the history, what led up to this point. We will be looking at the man, Nahum, and we will be looking at the book, in other words, what is the content of the book and why is it written and all of that. And then after our intro, we will have a sermon. <laughs> this has actually been the habit throughout all the minor prophets. What must I do? Okay. Through all the minor prophets is to give you an idea. That the idea is the minor prophets are really not well known to most people. And I think there's a lot of valuable things that we can learn from them. So I want to give you this part, but I don't want to neglect that part. And so this sermon will be titled um, Lessons. There's not space for this. Lessons from Nineveh. If, you, if you're not sure of where this plays off, I will tell you now the history. So if you've been following along, You'll know that Jonah, in the year 760 before Christ, we had Jonah, and approximately, and he preached to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire was taking over the world in that time, and they were the strongest force, and they were brutal in their conquering, um, the way they were taking over the, the then-known world. Um, their brutality was unlike any other nation before them. They would rip open pregnant women 
because of they believe that the gods of that city that they took over was dwelling in those pregnant babe, uh, those pregnant women. They would so they would and they would kill the children. They would only take the adults with them, and then they'll take the adults into captivity. That's what you know that Israel and Judah was also taken into captivity. So they get taken into captivity, so they get taken to strange lands, and then they become slaves in those countries. Oftentimes, these people that are taken captive would be used, would be impaled, and would be sacrificed to their gods. They would have beheading feasts where they would behead these people, and that would be a competition between them as to who could sacrifice the most to the gods. And so God was seriously displeased by these people of Nineveh. And so Jonah goes and Jonah preaches to these people in Nineveh. And what happens? They repent. And I can't, I don't have space. Prosperity ensues in Israel and in Judah because the Assyrian Empire has repented from their ways. They are not going to conquer anymore, and so that king, that generation of the Ninevites then stay um, in their town without conquering. And so Israel prospers, they do well. We looked at that back in Amos, we looked at that at Hosea, and how Amos and Hosea preached in this time of the prosperity of Israel, and how they rebuked Israel for their, the way they lived in this prosperity and absolutely neglected their God. And then what happens in 722, Israel goes into captivity. Assyria, after they had repented, generation passes, the next generation rises, and they sort of start heading back to their previous ways. And they conquer Israel. They do not conquer the southern tribes, Judah, but Israel goes to captivity. That's where the ten lost tribes of Israel comes from, is in 722. Now, after 722, and by the way, this is where Micah, that's where we were last time. That's where Micah came. Ooh. <laughs> Micah. Micha. <laughs> that is where Micah comes into the picture. Micah is preaching here. Yeah? And what does Micah preach about? He prophesies against the southern tribe who is now following the footsteps of the northern tribe. The People who were fleeing from the north were fleeing into the south and they were bringing some of their paganism, they were bringing all of these things with them and were infiltrating the, can I say, the purity of the, of the southern tribes. And so Micah starts preaching against that and how this influx is coming and how they need to resist against that. And then after Micah, we have Assyria basically being stronger and bigger than they have been ever before. And now this is where all this cruelty is going on with the Assyrians towards all these other people. And in this period, you have about eight kings of Assyria before we get to Nahum. Now Nahum is approximately in 640, give or take. So you can see from there, when Nineveh was preached to, to here when Nineveh is preached to again is 120 years. And here is the destruction of Nineveh in 612. This is when Nineveh is only destroyed. So, you have Nineveh preached, Nineveh repents. 120 years passed, God is long-suffering with Nineveh throughout all this time. Finally, Nahum comes, 
and doom is proclaimed to um, Nineveh, and then only 30 years later is it actually, does it actually happen. So to say that God is not long-suffering with absolute brutality and absolute sin in a nation would be a completely false statement to make. He did give them a lot of time to repent. And um, yeah, I wanted, it's not necessary to go, go into all the gore, but if you want to, go read about the Assyrians and the way they pillaged and the way they conquered and how absolutely depraved they were as a people. And so when Nahum comes to the scene, he has seen and he has heard of Israel's captivity. He has seen what has happened to those people. He has seen how the Syrians, he's even seen how a, a town in Egypt, which would be Assyria's main opponent, has been absolutely destroyed. The people have been taken captive. You actually read about that in the book of Nahum. So Nahum has seen this, this um, brutality of these Assyrians. And um, the Lord gives Nahum a vision. And that's what the book of Nahum is about. It's about Nahum's vision about the destruction of this Ninev these Ninevites, this Assyrian power. Before we get into that, who is, who is Nahum? Nahum is only mentioned in Nahum chapter 1 verse 1 in the Bible. He's not mentioned anywhere else. Nahum does also not give any narrative. He doesn't tell a story. He's just giving his vision. So in other words, he doesn't give any background really of which kings. He doesn't give any background about himself. So we don't know who Nahum really is. We know he was a prophet. He says in Nahum chapter 1 verse 1, he says, The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Alkoshite. So we know he is from Alkosh. But you know what we know about Alkosh? Nothing. <laughs> so he is an unknown man from an unknown town. Now there are theories as to where Alkosh is. There's a place in modern day Iraq which is called Alkosh, but it's spelled with an A and then a Q. Alkosh. And that would be interesting if that is where he is from, because that means modern-day Iraq is where the captives went from the, southern, uh, from the northern tribes. So maybe he was in, taken in captivity, and he was in that captive land, and from there is where he started prophesying against the Ninevites. Or another alternative is that he's actually from the southern tribes of Israel, from Judah. Because in chapter 1, verse 15, he speaks about, O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. So he could have been from there as well. And then a very interesting one is the city of Capernaum. Capernaum literally means city or little town of Nahum. That is, and that, but that would be in Galilee, which is in the south. So make of it what you want. We don't know. But I think there's something interesting that we can say about that is Nahum is an unknown man. But he had a message that was absolutely true, and that came to pass. And so, irrespective of whether you're a big shot or not, doesn't matter. If what you have is true, it remains true. It is not made more true by your popularity. It is not made more true by anything else than the fact that it is true. And Nahum had that truth. And so if you must stand in that authority when you preach the gospel, when you say something, something like, thus saith the Lord, this is what the Bible is saying, you can say it confidently, not because of who you are, but because of the message that you are preaching. And that is what we need to take out into the world as we go. So, Nahum, the nobody. 
Now, what is the book about? It is about Nineveh. It is about the destruction of Nineveh. Nineveh. And it can be broken down into three portions. As it is broken down into three chapters, chapter one would be the destruction proclaimed. So I'm going to alliterate this. It is proclaimed. That's chapter one. Chapter two is the destruction or the particulars of the instruction, the details, the particulars of the instruction. How is this going to happen? And then chapter three is the prosecution. Now, I must be honest, the prosecution is not a very good word for what I'm trying to say, but it is a P, so I had to use it. (laughs) What I'm trying to say is it is the explanation. It is the, the verdict, the case against. Why is this happening to Nineveh? Okay? So you have chapter 1, which is the destruction proclaimed. You can have a look at um, chapter 1, verse 14. You'll see here how this is proclaimed. Chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy God will I cut off the graven image and the molten image, and I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. That is what God is saying towards these Ninevites. So he's proclaiming their doom. And then you can have a look at the particulars of the destruction. So in chapter 2, there are a lot of details about their destruction. So have a look at chapter 2, verse 3. It says, The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. So here's an army coming into Nineveh and who's going to destroy them. Now, just so you know, the army who destroys Nineveh in 612 is a Babylonian, Persian, Arabian mixture. It would be the kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. It would be that, that kingdom who eventually takes um, Judah into captivity. All right? So it's that very same um, force that rises up against Nineveh. Um, so there we have this war that's going on. Interestingly, some people have taken verse 4 to think of a prophetical word about vehicles and traffic. Because <laughs> they're red lights and they're flashing and they're moving as lightning and all these types of things, which is obviously not at all consistent with what we're trying to get in here, but nonetheless, some information if you wanted to know that. Um, verse 6, another detail of another Um, particular of this destruction verse 6 says and the gates of the rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved now Nineveh was destroyed yes by this army who came in but historians have now also shown that a massive flood broke down Nineveh's walls they were situated right next to a river and there was a branching river off of them so they were almost like in this V protected by rivers And so a massive flood, there was a very rainy season, and the flood actually helped destroy the walls. And when the walls fell, these armies could come in. So this is consistent with the prophecy that the rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be destroyed. So that's another way, the particular, the detail of their destruction. Have a look at verse 7. And it says, And Huzzab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maid shall um, lead her as with a voice of doves taboring on their breasts. 
basically what I'm trying to point out here is these people who were throughout the years taking all these nations captive will themselves be taken captive. And so what goes around in the sense definitely does come around. And then have a look at verse 9. Another detail about it, it says, Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of her store and glory out of all her pleasant furniture. So, in other words, take all her money, take all her, everything that she has, all her riches. And in, verse, in, in chapter 3, it also actually speaks, continuing about this in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Thou also shalt be drunken, thou shalt be hid, thou shalt seek strength because of the enemy. They shall be hid. They're, they're, all their riches shall be taken. And you know, when Nineveh fell, it was only discovered, the ruins of Nineveh was only discovered in 1845 or something like that. It was hid for 2,000 years. And they have not, apparently, not till today, found any coin or anything that in the, in the city of Nineveh, in archaeological artifacts, they haven't found any money, any gold or silver from their riches, which is exactly what it says, take all of it. Take all of it. So it's quite interesting how consistently that prophecy comes through in this vision of Nahum. And then lastly, as I said, the third division of this vision would be chapter 3, which is the prosecution or the, the reason behind their um, captivity. So we'll look at three reasons for their, um, for their destruction. And that is in verse 1 is the first reason. It says, Woe unto... So in chapter 3, verse 1, Woe unto the bloody city, it is full of lies and robbery, and the prey departeth not. The noise of a whip, the noise of a, the noise of a rattling of the wheels, and of the prancing of horses, and the jumping of the chariots. So these were just a, a whoremongering people, and in verse 3 it actually speaks about the great multitude of carcasses over which these people had to walk because of how destructive they were. So the first thing that God punishes them for is for their cruelty. That's the first verdict, the first thing that's brought in against them. The second thing that's brought in against these Ninevites is their whoredoms. Have a look at verse 4 of chapter 3. It says, Because of the multitude of, thy, of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. So, the second reason God destroys them is for their whoredoms. Now that is the whoredoms of nations where they literally take a nation and sell a nation as if it's worth, worth nothing, nothing. And so that both in their, in their paganism, whoredom and all these sexual perversions were part of their religion, but also how they treated other nations is absolutely disgusting in God's sight. And then the third reason, um, or the third um, reason why God is um, punishing them is in verse 8. It's, uh, it's Nineveh's pride. In verse 8 it says, God asks them, Are thou better than populous? No. Now, no, this is actually Thebes in Egypt. It is no Amon, which means the town or the city where Amon, the God, is worshipped. So, art thou better than this populous? No. That was situated among the rivers, that had the waters round about it, whose rampant was the sea, rampart was the sea, and her wall um, was from the sea. And then it speaks about it at Ethiopia and Egypt as a strength and all these things. So he's asking, are you better than this city who has been utterly destroyed and taken captive? Do you think you are better than the... Do you, do you really think you are this great? 
And so that's what Nineveh thought. They were the best. They were indestructible. Nothing could touch them. And so those are the three reasons. Their cruelty, their whoredoms, and their pride. And then the book of Nahum ends with verse 18 and 19. Basically stating that their destruction is inevitable. It will happen and people will celebrate it. Verse 18 says, chapter 3, Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people are scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous, and all that hear the brute, the brute, that's the report of thee, shall clap the hands over thee. And upon whom hath thy wickedness, uh, hath not thy wickedness passed continually? So in other words, everyone has felt their endless cruelty, and when people hear about their destruction, they will celebrate it. And there is no healing for, their, for thy bruise. And that was the end of Nineveh. That was prophesied 30 years before it happened, and so many of those details came to pass. And that is the end of how Nineveh, even though they repented back in Jonah's day, they ended in absolute destruction. So, I want to focus on lessons from Nineveh. If that is how they ended, but there was a point of repentance, what happened? What went wrong? Why did Nineveh end up where they ended up? And so I want us to look at a few lessons from Nineveh. But before we get into that, let's just pray together. Lord, we ask that you please guide us through this, this portion, Lord. Um, Lord, please touch our hearts. Lord, each of us have different struggles and each of us have different needs. And, but Lord, we, all of us, I pray, will hear from you this morning. For, um, Lord, we want to be closer to you. We want to be more like Christ. And Lord, please shape us, Lord. Even though this, even to myself, has been a hard, hard word, Lord. I pray that you would please come quicken our hearts, give us the strength to bear it, Lord, and shape us, Lord, to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first lesson I want to point out from Nineveh, there are actually two things that I'm predominantly going to focus on. The first one is repentance is not hereditary. Repentance does not transfer from a generation to another generation. Okay. We'll go into more of that. And the second thing is, God is God. I'm going to have three sub-points to that, but God is God. And you'll see why I say that, but the first point about repentance is not hereditary. What I mean by that is, the historical and the generational obedience of Jonah, the Nineveh of Jonah's time, did not automatically transfer to the Nineveh after Jonah's time. If you're born in a Christian home, if you have parents who love and seek God, that does not mean anything for your spiritual walk. You should be thankful that you do have parents who can show you the Word of God, who can guide you into truth. You need to be thankful for that. But just because you grew up in a Christian home, just because you are in church today, because you grew up in a Christian tradition, does not mean anything for your personal 
repentance, and walk with God. And that is so often overlooked. And you know, even if you know that in your head, you don't always think it. I often find myself, well, it's Sunday, I go to church. Okay, but what is behind it? What is driving it? Is it really my heart to know God better? To hear from Him? Or is it, well, it would be the wrong thing to do not to go. Yes, it would, but that's not the primary reason, right? So, this repentance of your parents, this repentance of a previous generation, the, you, I almost want to say, you can't claim the mercy of your previous generation. God has done wonders for various countries, various tribes, various people groups. But that doesn't mean you can <laughs> claim that mercy. God will have mercy on me because I am this person. It doesn't work like that. It is not generational. It is not, I want to say, um, it's not hereditary. Repentance is something between you and God. A walk with Him cannot be passed on by your parents. I am not holier or closer to God or saved because of anything I inherited from a previous generation. I'm thankful for missionaries who have come to South Africa. I'm thankful for my parents who got saved so that I could hear the gospel. But I am not saved because they got saved. I am not a Christian because they are Christians. I don't come to church because it is normal to go to church on a Sunday. That is not why we go. So my question is, why do you call yourself a Christian? Is it personal? I can't answer that for you. Do you say I'm a Christian because it is personal? Or are you just born culturally in Christianity? Because there's a big difference. I was telling Armand and Francois yesterday that being saved, this may sound weird, but being, being saved is not the same as being a Christian. The reason I say that is because a Christian is someone who follows and imitates Christ. The Christians, the people in Antioch, were called Christians in a mocking sense in Acts chapter 11 because they lived a life like Christ lived. It was not something they attributed to themselves. They were saved, and then therefore they wanted to live like Christ, and once they started imitating the life of Christ, then they were called Christians. And so, why do you call yourself a Christian? Can we put the seriousness of that claim back into Christianity and not make it the shallow thing that it has become? Repentance is not hereditary. It is personal. Just like the sin of your father is not imputed to your account, the same way the righteousness or the intimacy of the relationship of the Father is also not imputed to them. Right? We need to get that straight. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Acts, uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. That soul shall die. All right. So let's get that straight. Now, the next three points I want to focus in on God is. God is. <laughs> and what I mean by that is 
whether you like what you read about God, <laughs> whether it's difficult to consume, whether the focus in this book is not on God's mercy, it's not on God's love, it's not on God's patience, really. It's where his patience has run out. It's all about those things. But it's still God. It's not a different God. It's the very same God. And there's a few things I want to point out about that. Before we point out these things, I want to read in Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 to 7. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2 to 7. And it says, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and in the clouds are the dust and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, he drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is buried at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. That is not your typical, at least when I think of God, this is not what I think about. And that, I actually say a little bit to my shame. Because, although this is not how I experience God daily, it doesn't make this less a portrayal of who God is. And so I'm, what I'm trying to say is, sometimes our, our view of God is really one-sided. It's like he's this soft, cuddly bunny. You know? This gentle grandfather with a white mustache that just sits there. You know? like, that is not the God of the Bible. Now, the first point under this subject is God is. Just God is. Nahum's days, Ninevites, definitely did not believe in God the way Jonah's days, Ninevites, did. These Ninevites here did not believe what these Ninevites here believed. There was a complete difference. If you look, if you look back at the book of Jonah, God says, The wickedness of Nineveh has come before me. Go and preach their destruction, Jonah. Jonah goes, and what happens? They repent in sackcloth and ashes. They have a decree over the land. The king repents. Everyone repents. They fast. They take it serious. Even the beasts are repenting. They took it serious. And then, well, let me not get ahead of myself. So that's what happens in Nineveh in, in Jonah's time. But the Ninevites in Nahum's time is completely different. Now this could be because of the time that has passed, we see there's 120 years that have passed. Think about it, 120 years. That's 191900. That's the year for us, from our perspective. It's before the Titanic. 
It's before the First World War, before the Second World War. It's before all of that. That's long ago. A lot of things have changed. Right? And then their destruction was only in 2050 from our perspective. So you can understand almost in a way, you can find yourself feeling like a Ninevite in the sense that, well, nothing's happened in 120 years. This doom, doom was coming, but nothing happened. Here we are still today. And in the time when we weren't conquering, we were just sitting here in Nineveh doing nothing. Now, look, we're, we're plundering. Look how rich we are. Look at everything we have since we've sort of stepped away from God. That's what they were thinking. And Nahum comes and he preaches and they're like, oh, another one. And see, nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing. And then finally, their destruction does come. But what I'm trying to say is, time has passed and they don't think of God the way they should. Now, either they don't think of God the way that Jonah's Ninevites did, because they, um, they have sort of changed. Well, let me, let me restart again. Either the reason they don't take it seriously is because they've changed who God is to them. They've said, no, God is not the person who will judge us. Look, we're fine. God is the one who blesses us. So they've changed who God is to themselves. Or they've just absolutely neglected the idea of there is a God who will judge. Now that is immediately true to us here today. If you're an atheist, if you know of atheists, they don't believe in God, and that's why they say, ah, oh, we don't have to worry about it. Okay? Or if you're a don't take your faith seriously, you say, well, God's fine. He won't punish me. I like the God of the New Testament. Well, let me tell you something. You know, Revelation chapter 19 is in the New Testament. <laughs> and Revelation 19 is where Jesus comes down with a sword coming out of his mouth. And he destroys. So, there is wrath on either side. Now, why am I pointing this out? Now, wait, imagine, imagine Nahum comes, or Jonah comes, and he says, I have a word of the Lord. I have this vision that I'm going to share with you. And they say, oh, no, sorry, uh, we, don't, we don't believe in your God. Oh, their name says, oh, sorry, okay. Nice, and I'll, I'll just go back to where I came from. He doesn't stand back just because their view of God is one of lovingness and only that. He also doesn't step back because, oh, no, we believe in the pagan gods. We don't believe in Jehovah, so... We're not going to entertain this conversation. Nahum doesn't step back at that. He says, well, nevertheless, this is what God says. And so God is God. What you think God is like, or whether you think He is at all, does not mean, or doesn't change who He is. Let me say that again. What you think God is, what I think God is, does not change who God is. If I think there is a God, or if I don't think there is a God, it doesn't change the fact that there is a God. What I believe is completely disconnected from the reality of who God is. God is the judge. God is also the justifier. He is both. He is not either or. You don't pick and choose. God is God.
Now the question is, is the way I view God, is the way you view God, the God of the Bible? Have you sort of trimmed at God? Say, no, that, that, that doesn't look nice. I don't like that. That's a bit, you know, extreme. Or do you see God for the way He is? The full picture of who He is. One way to check yourself is if someone asks you the question, who is God? And you say, well, to me God is. Then I immediately want to say, I don't care. (laughs) Who is God? Not to you, not to me. Who is God? And that's, that's difficult to decipher, I almost want to say, in a society where speaking of God and mentioning God is everywhere. But what people mean by God is not what the Bible says about God. And so we need to bring ourselves back and not let society, not let the culture define who God is, but let God, who He has revealed Himself to be through Scripture, define who He is to us. God is God. And we need to get this right. Because Nineveh did not get it right. And it, le- it ended up in their destruction. We need to get it right. Who is God? Not who is God to me. We need to sit down. We need to look at Scripture. We need to meditate on it and say, God, shape, change so that I see you the way that you truly are, that I can live my life in a way that pleases you and not who I think you are. We want God, um, we want to know God personally, and we need to know him for who he really is completely. And I am not by any means saying that he is not merciful. We saw that in Micah. We saw that in the history of The Israelites of the Ninevites, he is merciful, but he's not just merciful. Well, let's get back to that thought just now. Now, what I also want to say is, so first point, God is. The second point is, he's the same God. The God of Jonah's Nineveh and the God of Nahum's Nineveh is the same God. It's not a different God. I know you know this, but it's the same God. The God who shows mercy is also the God who shows wrath. And you know what the scary thing is? In Jonah and in Nahum, God is good. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 6. It says, chapter 1, verse 6 says, Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good. Hmm? That aspect is not, is not just good. It actually portrays God's goodness. That's like mind-blown type of situation in my mind. <laughs> God goodness is shown through his wrath. <laughs> it might not sit right with you. And I must say, it, I struggle with it as well. It doesn't always sit right with me. But that's our problem. <laughs> it's not God's problem. 
And don't say, I don't say that flippantly. I literally mean that is God. So either you take it <laughs> or you leave it. But if we struggle with it, it shouldn't be, oh, well, well then I'm not going to read Nahum. Let's flip over to... No, that's not how you treat it. And sort of cut Nahum off of your image of God. It is, we need to change. God, I struggle with this. I don't know how to... I don't know how to reconcile this. God, show me. Show me how this is good. Change me. Don't try and change God in the process. You can't change God, but don't try and change who you think he is. Imagine if God was this soft, people-pleaser kind of person, and so he wanted to please Jonah, and Jonah was very, very angry with God when God spared Nineveh. And so God was like, oh, shame. Okay, Jonah, I'm really sorry. I'll pour out my wrath on them. And then other people are like, but God, how can you be so wrathful? How can you just kill? Just if God says, you define who I am, then who is he? Then he is a figment of our imagination. Then he's sort of, oh, he wants, I'll be with you. I can't. <laughs> God is running around after our thoughts. The thoughts that are carnal and sinful and small, the minds that are created by God, somehow think that we have a better grip on who God is and who God should be. That doesn't work that way. We need to say, God, my mind cannot grasp all of you. Which, by the way, is not a bad thing. <laughs> but I struggle to reconcile this and that. Show me, teach me, change me. Because you know, one day in Revelation 19, it actually speaks about how God will pour out his wrath on that great whore and the people who she deceived. And it says, we'll be singing hallelujah. <laughs> Finally, our eyes will be opened to how God's wrath can be good. And I don't think it's so difficult to grasp for us. Because if someone does something terrible to you, your family, something like what the Ninevites were doing, impaling them, amputating them, beheading them, all of these things, ripping open, if that happens to you, I'm sure you'd say, God, I'm so thankful you're just and that your wrath will one day make everything right. There has to be a final judgment and God is that final judge. So we need to change if something rubs us the wrong way, not God. The last thing about God that I want to look at is that God takes sin seriously. Now, I don't think I need to say why I say that. <laughs> I think it's quite clear. But God takes sin seriously. Part of understanding who God is, is under, I want to say, is taking him for who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. And what he's revealed in Scripture is that he takes it seriously. God's go-to position, and I mean that is evidently clear throughout Scripture, his go-to position is not wrath. He is not the ready-shoot-aim person. <laughs> he definitely is long-suffering. He definitely desires mercy. He desires people to repent. He has no pleasure in the damnation of the wicked. The God we serve wants to show mercy. All right? We know that 
God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is God's heart. But just because that is true does not mean he's not also just and that he has to punish sin. He takes it seriously. If people live in unrepentant sin and they don't care for justice and mercy and they don't treat others with natural affection, God will avenge. He will avenge. You know, there's this idea going around that when we sin, it, it's sort of like God is just hurt by it. It's sort of like God is, yeah, it, it, it's just hurt by it. He, it breaks his heart. As much as that is true, God is also infuriated by it. He's also angered by it. You can't say that is not true. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. We cannot dare to take our sin lightly. We cannot dare to do that. If you think that God will let your sin slide, but He didn't let Jesus, He crushed His Son on the cross. His wrath was poured out on His Son. And we think that God is okay with our sin? God did not take it lightly. He was willing to break His Son. So our sin does not just break His heart. It infuriates Him. That's why we say praise be to God. Thank Jesus for taking our space on that cross. That the wrath of God was poured out on Him and not us. Because be sure that your sin will find you out. Be sure that God is not just mildly upset or displeased with sin. His wrath will be poured out. We saw it in Nineveh. We read about it prophetically in the book of Revelation. We see these things coming to pass. Are we standing here? We know that this is coming and we're like, Meh, maybe, we'll see. You'll see. <laughs> and in case you think our sin might not be as bad as Nineveh's from a physical sense yes we're not impaling people and we're not doing all these things granted but you know what Jesus said in Matthew 12 he speaks about Jonah and the Ninevites and he says Nineveh will be raised up to judge this generation for their sin. Because a prophet greater than Jonas's, Jonah has come, Jesus, and he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and he's basically saying, yes, you are clean, but your self-righteous, religious form of sin and pride is going to be judged by those evil Ninevites. In other words, your sin is worse than theirs. 
That is scary. So let us not think that just because we've cleaned ourselves up, we're not as brutal as the Assyrians. It doesn't mean our heart is any closer to God or closer to true repentance. These are hard things, (laughs) but they're true. They grief or cause grief to God. So I want us to, to test our hearts. Where do we stand today? Where, where do we think? What makes us Christian? Why are you here in church? Ask yourself these questions. Like month asked last week, do you really believe in the resurrection? Really? Do you really believe in it? It has to change the way you live. It has to change the way you look at things. And also, I think a lot of it stems from a misunderstanding of who God really is. And the reason I emphasize this so much is because I honestly, honestly, firmly believe you are doing yourself a disfavor by having an, an idol as God in your head. Having a different view of God than who He truly is. You're doing yourself a disfavor because so much stems from knowing who God is and changes the way you want to live and how you want to conduct yourself and what you aspire to. All these things stem from a proper understanding of who God is. Now, I'm not claiming to have that, but I want to pursue it and I want to know more and I want the Bible to tell me who this God is, not society, not my ideas. Who is God? And serving Him and following Him. So Nineveh was called to repentance. And repentance simply means to have a a deep and profound change of mind. Now, we need a change of mind. Whether it is regarding our sin, if we're lost, changing our mind about the severity of our sin and falling into the hands of that angry God whether it is if you are saved and you sort of don't have a serious approach to following him, um, treating your sin as seriously as he sees it, or whether it is in the way you view God, all of that requires repentance, that change to say, God, I want to follow you. I want to see you the way you've revealed yourself. I want to understand how much or how disgusting sin is. Show me. I want to be more like Christ. That should be our desire. That should be our pursuit. So that we do not end up in, this might be a prophecy, but I don't know, (laughs) in 30 years from now, and Jesus has come. 10 years from now, we don't know. But we need to live as if Jesus is returning. So, the proclamation of God's wrath. I forgot to mention this in the beginning. Nahum's name means comfort or consoler. Now, it's in a book where there is very little comfort and consoling. But it was comfort and consolation to the people who knew God. Because their greatest enemy was destroyed. And so the wrath was comfort to the people who knew God but it was pain and anguish to the people who didn't. The same thing, God's wrath, can result in comfort 
can result in consolation or it can result in that eternal death. The same characteristic. So, how do you view God's wrath? Is it something that you see as God one day redeeming this world and bringing us closer to Him, destroying sin and Satan and bringing us into that intimate fellowship with Him? Or do you see it as something that you are in danger of? That's the question you need to answer for yourself. But Jesus is the only way to bring us into that reconciled relationship with God. May I ask that you please stand. Let's close our eyes and let's go to the Lord. Lord, this is a this is a hard saying. <laughs> um, but Lord, you are good. Lord, I thank you that you have shown your goodness through your mercy. Lord, we want to we want to hold on to that, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for that goodness, that that unmerited grace and mercy that you've shown to us on the cross. Lord, at the same time that we are justified by Jesus hanging on the cross, your wrath is poured out. And Lord, you remain good in both, which is incredible, Lord. But I ask that you would please, each of us, Lord, are going to experience that just goodness, either in the punishment for sin or in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Lord, please, please come. Come save those who are not saved. Help them see the severity of their sin and Lord, just how serious you take it, Lord. And for us as well who are saved, help us, Lord. We want to be more like you and if that means we, we need to change the way we think about you, the way we see you. Please help us, Father. Lord, out of, out of this understanding, I believe so much of our life flows. The way we think, the decisions we make, the way we live. Lord, please come help us. Come work in us, Lord. Come change us. I have no desire to change you, Lord. And I pray that that would be the desires of these people as well. It's a futile attempt to try and change you. Please, Lord, come change us. Bring our hearts closer to yours that we may see life through your eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.